0: You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc. Hey, you all hungry for the Word of God this morning? Go ahead and uh, take your Bibles in your hand and um, turn to Hebrews chapter 12. We've been in Hebrews for the last, uh, since last year, since uh, November of last year. Just... Lovingly, with faith going through it verse by verse and I pray it's been a gift to you. Um, I just want us to look at verse 28. It says this. This is Hebrews chapter 12. I pray you're hungry for the word of God this morning. This is burning in my heart. Pun intended based on this verse that we're about to read. So, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So, the writer of Hebrews has been meticulously taking us on this journey of revealing Jesus as the clear revelation of God than what these believers knew of God based on the Old Testament scriptures and, and writings of the law and the prophets. They had seen a revelation of God handed to Moses and the prophets that these believers, you know, in terms of where they were, some proposed Rome, others say other places, but we're not, we're not 100% sure where they, where they lived, these believers, but these were at least uh, more academically inclined uh, believers and uh, they, they knew the revelation of God through Moses and the law and knew Jesus was the fulfillment of Old Testament scripture but the writer of Hebrews wanted to lean into that all the more and make it very clear that Jesus is the clearer picture, picture of God, the clearer revelation of God. And, uh, and so Jesus as God revealed to humanity is not in contradiction to God revealed to us in the law and the prophets. And that's, that's settled in the book of Hebrews. He's better than the prophets, he's better than Moses, he's the fulfillment of the law, he is the high priest, he is the great high priest. He's, he is the fulfillment of the temple and all of, its, um, you know, all of its particular prescriptions of how to approach God. Jesus is the fulfillment of all those things. It's really interesting, I was on a, um, on a trip recently with a pastor friend and we were, we were in an Uber and had a conversation with our Uber driver about faith and whatnot. not and, and he began to talk about how he, he struggled with the picture of God in the Old Testament and how it seemed to be in opposition to or in contradiction to the God as revealed in the New Testament, Jesus. And uh, it was a great conversation and honestly one I've had so many times. Because it's a, a common mis, misreading, really, or misconception of, uh, of the Bible in its entirety. This verse points to that. And he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter four, verse 24. That our God is, is a consuming fire. He's talking about Jesus as well. This one on whom we, we approach with reverential awe and live lives of worship. He the one who's invited us into the Holy of Holies in his gracious love and compassion is a consuming fire. It was a a great conversation with that gentleman. We got to pray with him. But I think it's a a common misunderstanding, and I want to bring clarity to that this morning. I pray that you see Jesus as the better revelation of God, not to abolish the old covenant, the Old Testament, but to fulfill it and to bring, bring it into even greater Crystal clearness and clarity in your heart and mind. You know, if, you've ever, if you're ever watching uh, a screen of, of sorts and maybe you have a bad connection, you'll see it begin to be pixelated. I like to think of that as like the Old Testament. It's like, it's a, it's a picture of God for sure, but it's pixelated, it's a little fuzzy, it's a, it's a little unclear. And then Jesus came. And all of a sudden, the connection is made and it is crystal clear. This is the, the best is the writer of Hebrews, the better revelation. But I'll tell you, it's the best revelation of God that we will get. It's the person of Jesus. And Jesus said, don't look any further. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so Jesus is the better revelation, but sometimes when we think of Jesus being the better revelation, we think, oh, it's because Jesus is so easygoing, right? He is, he's my man. Jesus is my buddy, because he's better, right? He's maybe a little softer, a little kinder, or something. Or <laughs> the writer, a writer in Hebrews, continually throughout the book gives us a warning against that very vibe. To say, "Oh, walk, walk cautiously, walk so like with a sense of sobriety, of humility, of just be aware, be warned." That same one who sacrificially willfully came and gave his all, once and for all, that we'll read again this morning, once and, all, once and for all on the cross, is also a consuming fire. I'll just, if you're already in Hebrews, you can just turn back a few verses. Hebrew, I'll, I'll, I'll show you three other warnings he gives, because this is kind of a similar tone. Hebrews chapter three, verse 12. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And in the context there is he's, he's pointing them to the Old, Old Testament, the children of Israel, how they harden their hearts in the wilderness. He says, don't do that. Take, you know, take heed, take care, so you don't have an unbelieving heart if you... Move to Hebrews chapter six, verse 12. Again, another warning, or verse 11 and 12. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So God is good, he is gracious, he is our hope, he is the fulfillment of all things. He truly is that good, he is hope, capital H. But beware. Don't don't receive that lightly. Don't receive that as a trivial thing, as a free pass. Don't be sluggish, he says here in Hebrews chapter six. One more warning. Hebrews chapter 10. There's... A big warning here, but <laughs> see, you could read it again because we were, we were here a number of weeks ago, but just jump down to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 30. It says, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. So that's the one we're talking about. Yes, the savior of the world, the, the answer for our sin, the, the one who lovingly, compassionately healed the sick, set people free, willingly in sacrificial love gave his all for you is also a consuming power, so a fire. So let's read this entire passage. This morning my, pr- my prayer and all week it has been that we would receive the love of the Lord this morning with humility that it would be both receiving the love of the Lord with faith, but also with humility, with a sense, and I feel like the Lord's restoring this in the church, capital C, a sense of the fear of the Lord, a sense, in, a sense of awe and reverence. Not, not a fear that keeps them at a distance, but as we're drawn near by the grace of the Lord, that there's also then stoked upon our hearts a sense of awe and reverence in the fear of God. So let's read this, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18 says this. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no no further messages be spoken to them. So that's, that's a lot of words to describe and point them to the Old Testament. The old covenant that um, the way God revealed himself to the children of Israel. It was in this, on this mountain with a cloud encompassing the mountain and the shaking of the mountain, in this sense that we can't even get close to the mountain itself. In fact, we're even afraid of God's mediator, which is Moses, because he, he shines so brilliantly after being with this one Yahweh. And so he, he's, he's giving them that language. That's, that's what Jesus himself fulfilled and we don't approach now a physical mountain like, like we read about in the Old Testament. Verse 24, they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So now it all turns on head to verse 22. This is the contrast, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So that stuff wasn't abolished. God on a mountain revealing himself to a mediator, Moses, that wasn't abolished, it was fulfilled in Jesus. So now there's not a need for a physical mountain. Now there's not a need for a mediator, right? Because Jesus is that, we read that earlier in Hebrews. Now we, we ourselves, we've not come to a physical mountain, but a spiritual mountain, we've come to Mount Zion. We ourselves have come into this city of the living God. Now we're citizens of heaven, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering. Verse 23, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Verse 25, see, here's the warning. That's why I read the earlier warnings because this is like the last warning of the book. It's like, that's what you've received. We don't, we don't now come to a physical mountain. We no, no longer come to a mediator like Moses or the prophets. Now you can come right into the throne room of grace as he said earlier. You yourself can come into to the spiritual mountain. You become a citizen of heaven. But beware, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. If God gave that warning to Israel and even they hardened their hearts to it and we're talking about a physical thing, now there's mediators, there's like a buffer, all the more now in this new covenant. God has come near, mediators have been removed. Physical barriers have been removed, all the more. So finishing verse 25, I just get so excited I can't even finish the verse, right? (laughs) Verse 25, I'll read it. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on, on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Just let that like bring a little shudder down your, your spine there. Verse 26, at that time his voice shook the earth So praise God that we don't go to a physical mountain. And even what I was quoting earlier from John 4, Jesus points us to that very thing. He says there's coming a day where you're not gonna come to Jerusalem. You're not gonna go to a mountain to worship. There's coming a day when my people will worship in spirit and truth. So praise God that we live in that day, amen? Amen. That you yourself can go into the secret place and you can worship the Lord. You can actually come into the Holy of Holies, not because of your works, or the works of a mediator, or because you fulfilled the prescriptions of a law handed to man, but because Jesus himself fulfilled all those requirements and said if you place your confidence in him, you yourself can come confidently into the throne room of grace. Praise God for that. But all the more, if it's a better covenant, it's not better in a sense that lowers the responsibility, actually raises the responsibility of us to come with a sense of reverential awe and humility, amen? Amen. So I pray this morning that we receive the love of the Lord with humility. Are you guys tracking with me? It's better. It's better in every way. And if it's better, all the more we need to receive it with humility. It's better in clarity, it's better in effectiveness, it's better in purity. It's better in the sense that you can have more confidence now. There's no mediators, so praise God. So let's break this down. Why is it that we can receive the love of the Lord? Why, why do we need to receive the love of the Lord with humility? I would say the greatest point that he makes in this entire passage, in that regard, is because now the mediators are gone. He says, because the word of God came to us, right? Now the message actually came to us. Now it's not, through, now it's not secondhand through Moses or a prophet but now the word became flesh, as John chapter one, verse 14 says. The word came to us. So all the more we receive the love of the Lord with humility because now it's come to you and it's come to me. It's become very personal. You know, when we, if you're, um, hearing maybe about something in town, like a, like a restaurant, or I, I was thinking of this this week because someone was talking about a new restaurant in town, and, and they said they hadn't been there personally, but they had a, a friend, or the, I think they had a kid who had heard from a friend that the restaurant was good. <laughs> so it was kind of like, you know, as soon as you have a few orders away from the opinion, it kind of lowers in terms of its validity or its authority, right? <laughs> and all the more if it's, Further, further removed. If it's secondhand, you're like beginning to maybe inch towards believing it. If it's a firsthand account, if the person themselves have been to that restaurant and they, you can see it glowing on their face, face how much it changed their life, then there's something about, it, oh wow, I want to go. But all the more if you experience it. That's, right. That's what happened. That's what happened when Jesus, John chapter one says he's the word, meaning the message took on flesh, so now it's not, oh, Moses said this about God. Moses had this encounter with God, or he quotes Haggai. Haggai talked about what God said. No, you heard what God said, (laughs) because God became flesh. You yourself can look now at the person of Jesus, who is the revelation of God. Now, you yourself can look at him, and then all the more, you're also held responsible for that revelation. You're, you're held responsible for that. We're gonna talk more about that later. Jesus makes that very clear that this revelation of him coming near, him coming and taking on flesh and demonstrating his authority over sin and sickness and the grave comes with it also a higher responsibility. Continually in his ministry, he would call out cities that experience more of his miraculous touch he said, "Woe to you, Capernaum! Wait, woe to you, Bethsaida! Woe to you, Chorazin! If, if Sodom and Gomorrah, you know these Old Testament cities that were demolished with uh, um, raining fire and brimstone, and thank you, fire and brimstone, and turned to rubble. If they if they would have received those same miracles, they would have turned and repented. So all the more." Like, come to the Lord with a sense of humility, with awe at what's been revealed to you. Jesus says that himself. He tells this story, this parable. Some don't, I mean, scholars, I guess, don't know if it's based on something true or if it's, uh, if it's a parable, but of Lazarus and the rich man. And this story is told to stoke this sense of the priorities of the kingdom of heaven. And the story is told of this evil rich man who has no regard for the poor, no regard for people that have lesser than him. And, and he ends up dying, gets, getting sent to hell. And, and then he sees Lazarus, this man who depended on the Lord, Lord this man who had a, a fear of God, who actually is receiving the mercy of the Lord. And his final, the rich man, as he's being tortured in Hades, has, his final request is, allow me to go back and talk to my relatives be raised from the dead to go and at least warn my relatives. And Jesus says, trust me, if they didn't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen to you even if they hear from from someone who's been raised from the dead. So there is this sense that even with what's been revealed to us, we will be held responsible. The word coming and being revealed to us, the risen Christ himself, we will be held responsible for the, the word of God being manifest in our midst. That's what he says. Most of verses 25 and on are in reference to that very thing, that the message himself has come and lived amongst us. So we need to receive the love of the Lord with humility because the word came amongst us. Secondly, it's because we are brought into a spiritual family. Verse 22, it says we have come to Mount Zion. We are now part of this citizens of this city of the living God of the heavenly Jerusalem, and joined with this festal gathering, we are now knit into something that is eternal, more than just what we see with our eyes. And that should send a sense of sobriety upon our hearts, that what you see right here in the natural is truly but a vapor. And you, as you place your faith in Christ, are knit together into something eternal, into an eternal family. This is why we have so much regard for our gatherings together as a church family. For us, these are not just social gatherings, these are not just organizational gatherings, these are something sacred. And I feel like oftentimes in the modern church we've lost that. We've lost the sacredness of God's people gathering under the banner of his name. Recently a friend who was with us, Bob Gladstone, he, he pointed out this passage in 1 Corinthians where it talks about how the angels looked on to their gatherings. It's almost like the, the angels looked on to the, 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 the gatherings of the church in Corinth and it was like they were, they were um, taking, taking note of how, how their, their gatherings were fulfilling the purposes of God, fulfilling the purposes of the Father. I believe the heavenlies take note of our gathering. When we gather together under the banner of Jesus, the heavenlies take note of what is happening here. This is not just a feel-good meeting or a social gathering. These are something sacred. And they should be regarded as such. In uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, that book I was just referencing, in regards to the angels taking note of our gatherings, it starts at the beginning, talking about how we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And that, that, that passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, says your, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, or you are, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Um, oftentimes we quote that in terms of maybe stewarding our bodies or we ourselves as individuals hosting Holy Spirit, which I say amen to all those things. But, but the, in the original Greek, The you that he uses there, for you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, is plural. And he's saying you all are a temple of the Holy Spirit. There is something the Lord is saying about us all together collectively being the body of Christ and Holy Spirit coming to dwell in our midst that I feel like has been lost much in the modern church. That I believe the Lord is restoring. That's why we're putting so much emphasis on prayer. That's why we're putting so much emphasis on worship. It's because we want Jesus to be preeminent. We want him to be the priority. We want our gatherings for our agenda to be given over to the Lord's, Lord's agenda. Amen? Amen. And you'll be, you'll be sensing this more and more in, in the months to come. We're gonna be putting more and more emphasis on us gathering together for prayer, just for prayer, just to seek the face of God. You know, right now we have prayer at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, especially with all those that serve, they come, and we center our hearts on the Lord. It's a beautiful, beautiful time. The Lord comes and fills people's hearts, fills them for service. I'm loving the season we're in, in that, because I will tell you over the last 18 months, I have not had a single person come to me and tell me they are burnt out as they serve in the church, which has become, you know, if you look at the underbelly of the modern church, the Western church, there is such, um, such, on a regular basis, people get burnt out serving in church because we've created machines. We've created these massive organizations that have to be supplemented by people working themselves to the bones. And that's not the gospel. The kingdom, people should be serving out of the overflow. And they should, they should be serving because they are so in love with the Lord. And it's, not to, it's not to say there's not moments of duty and just we're just adults and we just do what's difficult. But more often than not, what we should be doing is serving out of the overflow. And we've found that as we've prioritized prayer at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. People that serve, they come, and even if their hearts come in the wrong posture, they get recalibrated in his presence, they get filled up with him, they get a vision of how beautiful he is, and then they serve with glad hearts, with joyful hearts. And people aren't getting burnt out anymore. It's been beautiful. So we we pray at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. We also pray uh, Wednesdays at noon and Wednesdays at noon are, are amazing. The Lord shows up. And, but we understand like Wednesdays at noon are not like an ideal time for a lot of people. Uh, and so we're gonna be expanding our hours of corporate prayer, hopefully to go to four hours by next, uh, by next fall. They offer four different hours for, for corporate prayer. And even if you can't join us in person, more and more and more, we're going to be calling our people to join us, even online. I wouldn't say online is, is the same as being in person, it's not. Um, but in the world in which we live in, if, if you can join even online, I believe the Lord's gonna to speak to our hearts, move through a praying people, a people devoted to him. So what we are knit together in corporately as a community is something that even surpasses us here and now, it is something eternal, and that's what he says. You have come to something eternal, a heavenly Jerusalem. Now you're a citizen of something heavenly, something eternal. We actually kind of get knit in together with the Lord's story, even through the innumerable angels in festival gathering. So we receive the love of the Lord in humility because the word became flesh, because we are brought into an eternal family. Thirdly, because we are given firstborn rights. And with first, that's what he says, that we're joined with the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. So verse 23. If we are, if we receive firstborn rights, which we do through Christ, it's like you become a firstborn son that gets all the inheritance. You get all that Christ has for you. You receive as a firstborn child. There is no redhead stepchild. You know, there is. I was a thirdborn, so I, I got overlooked. I got neglected. I know. I can feel for you. They always forgot me. You know, they're like, oh yeah. They, I've, I've told you how scarred I was. That I went through an entire birthday once no one remembered it was my birthday. The saving grace is the fact that I didn't remember it was my birthday either, so. Um, so I feel for you, but it's all redeemed, the other side of eternity, because I become a firstborn, right, the favorite child. You become a favorite child in the kingdom of God. You become a firstborn, but with firstborn, with firstborn rights comes firstborn responsibilities, so take heed, be, be warned. It comes with, it's both and. It's both firstborn rights and firstborn responsibilities. It's not firstborn entitlement. So take it with a sense of sobriety. Take it with a sense of humility. It's the firstborn inheritance, but it's not firstborn entitlement, it's firstborn responsibility. So you receive that with humility. You say, Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for saving me, for adopting me into your family, for imparting upon my life the full inheritance that Christ has for me. Just reread Luke chapter 15 and the the parable of the prodigal son and fast forward to the end of it. Just look at the the older son. It's the elder son that has that sense of entitlement. right? He's the one looking down at the the son who, who ran away from the father's estate. And the whole time, the father's heart aches, even for the elder son. It's all right, Ivy. She's saying amen. <laughs> the, the firstborn is, is looking down at the, the younger son. And the whole time, the father's heart aches for the older son, saying, don't you know, all that I have is yours? That's what he says. All that I have is yours. So how many of us live like lesser children in the kingdom of God? How many of of us, through our actions, despise the generous outpouring of God's inheritance that he's placed upon our lives? So we receive firstborn rights. We also receive firstborn responsibility. To whom much is given, much is required, amen? You know, if we receive the grace of God lightly, as something trivial, I'll tell you that we're misunderstanding grace. We're misunderstanding, and that's the continual warning throughout the book of Hebrews. Just a few more minutes here. Lastly, we receive the love of the Lord with humility because of the precious, once and for all, blood of Jesus. Jesus did something that he will never do again. He'll never again come and live amongst us. Demonstrating perfection and fulfillment of the law. He'll never again give himself on the cross for us. So he came once and for all and paid that price on the cross for us. And for that, we should receive it with a sense of humility. It's something done once and for all. In that sense, what Jesus did is holy. It's holy in many senses, but in the sense that it's only done once. There is a sacred uniqueness about the, what, what Christ came and did on the cross and what he did through the resurrection, that is holy, his blood is holy for that reason, that he's not gonna shed his blood again. And so all the more, in capital letters, today is the day of salvation. Don't take for granted tomorrow. We're not promised tomorrow. So the call in this New Testament age, this new covenant age, this better covenant age is today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to respond to the Lord. This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc.